0: Welcome to Education Talks, I'm David Burke. Today's guest is Andrew Mowat. Andrew is an education journeyman, educator, principal, author, expert trainer and coach. Now, amongst other projects, he's the co-founder of eduspark.world. It was a real honour to speak with Andrew in this first episode of Education Talks. Andrew Mowat, uh, welcome to Education Talks.
1: Thanks, Dave. Great to be connected. Uh, We've had some great chats. Finally, uh, it's good to record one between us.
0: Absolutely. Um, Now, where in the world are you right now?
1: I'm in Singapore, and as of next week, it'll be my 10-year anniversary in living in Singapore. Uh, And uh, yeah, I love the place. It's a a really good part of the world, mostly. Um, You might hear the only problem we get from time to time, I'm close to one of the airports, and... uh, we might be buzzed during the interview with the odd F-15 or so. It's like living in an air show. But apart <laughs> from that, it's just absolutely brilliant.
0: Yeah, great place to be, somewhere where <laughs> I called home for a couple of years. Now, yep. if Singapore's been home for 10 years. Um, where are you from originally?
1: Originally, born at a very early age, boom, boom, uh, in Newcastle, so a little bit similar to your um, original stamping ground. But uh, most of my career was in Victoria, um, so I moved to Melbourne as a as a young lad eight-year-old and uh, hence you probably call me Victorian because I've got an AFL football team not a NRL rugby team <laughs> as uh, what I follow so probably pretty well Victorian from that point of view Melbourne
0: yeah yes you're on the traders list that's for sure so, <laughs> yes, yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, So then you began your teaching career in in Victoria, in Melbourne?
1: Yeah, I actually began it before I finished my degree. I was doing a science degree, Um, always interested in the sciences, Um, not brilliant at maths. And I would have loved to have been in the whole weather and meteorology type world, but the physics was too hard for me. Uh, And I was still interested in the natural world a hell of a lot, still am and uh so i i flipped over to do ecology and ethology and and uh, even some animal behavior type studies um and it was during that that i remember seeing some stats that the number of science degree graduates getting jobs was pretty low and about the same time i had begun to teach instrumental music and i was enjoying the teaching game so i i flipped into a science education course and then the rest is sort of history and uh my, my first year of teaching, Trivial Pursuit question, you might know the answer to this one. My first year of teaching was the same year that Mac was first released to the market. So what, what year do you reckon that might be?
0: Uh, was that... Oh, gee, I should know as a, as a bit of an Apple... Uh, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, what very famous ad. Very famous ad with a lady with a sledgehammer coming down through all the... IBM oh, that was
0: 1984.
1: It. Correct, yeah. So 1984. Uh, I think that's probably what, if you like... Um, Bit like a uh, some sort of viral infection of my teaching DNA. Um, I was lucky enough to have three Macs in the back of my room in this small country town up in the northwest, five hours northwest of Melbourne, a little place called Rainbow. Still have some great friends and still in touch with um, some of my first students from that era. Uh, so at that stage, we were only four or five years younger than me at that point, so it was a really interesting period of my career. But that that whole uh, approach to having those computers in my classroom at that early stage of my career probably uh, took me down a bit of an ICT route, a bit of a, an ed tech route.
0: Absolutely. So then, you know, you were in Rainbow in Victoria. Um, mm. So how long were you there? I
1: was there for three years. And then I, I moved into um, the eastern part of Victoria, uh, got involved with a couple of schools in the Mall area. Including, I'm a real journeyman. You know, I spent some time running a network of all things. Um, It was an old BBC network with a massive 50 megabyte hard drive that took five minutes to start up, and you couldn't start any computers up, but basically a a lab back uh, very early in the day when uh, we're talking about 1987 or so uh, down at Churchill. Um, and my, most people probably haven't heard of BBC as a computer brand, but it was a, a bit of an Apple II type um, uh, sort of box, if you like, and uh, ultimately moved from that to running um, a multi-campus sort of ICT type leadership role, which was basically four periods allowance uh, for Kernigh College. And from there became, if you like, a bit of a an EdTech lead, even though it wasn't called EdTech back then for a Greenfields um, Aboriginal school uh, called the Curry Open Door Education Initiative and Morwell was one of the ones that uh, I was based in. So I I started to do quite a bit of work involving um, some disenfranchised parts of the Australian community, the Aboriginal community, in um, better education using technology. But strangely, I jumped from being in a secondary world from that role into running a primary school. So I went from um, sort of this greenfield startup uh, uh, career open into education school into being principal of Drew Primary School. So um, a bit of an unusual sort of pinball like, if you like, bouncing from one thing to the other type of career. But I think a lot of people have that journeyman approach to their career over time. So
0: when you made that transition from sort of an, an ed tech person and then moved into that sort of leadership role, is that when your, your passion and, and, I guess, background interest in metacognition sort of uh, started to um, become more
1: prominent? Yeah, a good question. Actually, no. It was shortly after that role. I took a break. It was a very uh, stressful set of circumstances, and uh, I decided to step out of education at that point and, and began a coaching career. And I just so happened to do that with what was then called results coaching systems. Later, to become the Neuro Leadership Institute, run by David Rock, who um, now has a number of really successful books. And that was a brain-based approach to coaching. And I just fell into coaching. I loved it. It was I discovered what I'd been doing badly, but natively, without any structure. But it introduced me or reintroduced me to this this idea of taking the brain into account when we engage and intervene and, and try and um, connect people to growth opportunities and that's probably what started that new cascade i'd always been interested in the brain as a biology teacher It's just this weird thing in our skulls that is is beyond fascinating um, less known about the brain than we know about the universe in fact still it's it's a part of the the very edge of our science knowledge and understanding so that's what started me back in this space and thinking i remember thinking this idea that heck here we are in education we're trying to affect the brain as in where that's the organ that we're trying to really work on yet most teachers know very little about the brain and don't even think about learning as something that is physiologically and biologically changing in the brain And that started, it was that thought that cascaded into this sort of lifelong, from that point, lifelong passion in, let's learn more so that we can inform our craft of teaching so that we can optimise teaching to better suit what we know about the brain. So it was really that brain-based coaching opportunity that triggered all of that. I think it was probably there in the background, but it's what it brought to focus and into uh, my my sort of putting me on the passion box, if you like, standing up, shouting to the world about we need to know more about this.
0: Uh, what time period was this?
1: So this was 2006 now so I was um, principal for 1999 into 2005 and then left during 2005 and I did that coaching program in 2005 and it led to quite a number of one of the things I like to do it's a I don't know if it's a part of my coaching heritage or just the way my brain works but I like to reduce the complexity of lots of detail into a headline which is a very coachy thing to do Um, and I like to do that with science I discovered and so therefore some of the science was telling me this idea that there are mind states and brain states that are predisposed towards engagement and then there are threat-based systems that are activated when we get the wrong part of the brain working and that led me to the conceptualization of this idea of the blue zone, red zone, red zone being that sort of spiky threat based or fear based or anger based response, which is not very conducive to growth and development, very good for survival. And then this sort of more prefrontal cortex type activity, which is much more considered um, balcony on the and the dance floor type approach of being having this meta awareness of my own state and whether that's useful or not. And using that to um, understand what better teachers or the best teachers, how they were engaging students and why some other teachers weren't, uh, which led to a book called The Success Zone, itself not a massively successful book, but a book nonetheless uh, in collaboration with some other guys that I'd started to uh, do work with, uh, John Corrigan uh, amongst those uh, in a group that was going to schools and training middle leaders in the art of coaching to better inform them about leadership. Uh, so that period from two thousand and five, six through to twenty eleven was a, about the period that I took through that journey of understanding that that deep connection to conversation, leadership, and the brain.
0: What's been, a, I guess, a change in that area throughout that time, like the way that schools or teachers have been perhaps more or less uh, responsive or open to to this sort of thing.
1: It's still a slow journey. Um, I'm still in touch with. Um, Uh, John more than Doug, my other partner there, but uh, uh, John is still on this search for uh, and still working in this field of investigating why it is that some teachers command exceptional outcomes for students and other teachers are average to less than average. Uh, And I think the world of education in some parts of the world, not so much where I am, interestingly, but are interested in the softer sciences, they're not soft at all, but the softer sciences as an element of deep learning. Uh, And you would probably know yourself that the times you've learned the most are when you're in the presence of someone who has a a really um, deepened and uh, supportive relationship in a learning sense with you. And that that's also connected to generative conversation with this person. And unfortunately, with the world the way it is, with our obsession with content, um, I'm sort of almost beginning to rail against content. We just think of content, 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 adult learning and child learning, curriculum, concept, all these things, we've got to get through the the workbook. We've got to get through chapter three before this end of time. All of that precludes um, the rich opportunity that sits in knowing people well and knowing what they need as individuals and being present with them in the dialogue of learning. So um, I think there are parts of the world where that's becoming there's a bigger and stronger appetite as people explore. Why is it that this teacher here on my left just Mm. creates outstanding results and and the students love them and will do more for the teacher Mm. than the kids will do for themselves? And there are other teachers who just plough through the curriculum. Um, And there are these sort of hidden differences that people are starting to surface and highlight. So it's growing, but it's slow.
0: It actually reminds me of um, a, a guy I used to work with in the early part of my career in a, a country school in New South Wales and was sitting in the staff room. And I remember once, you know, he, it was kind of like there was a little man table where there's a, a few of us male teachers sitting <laughs> together, you know, and just having a chat. And I remember one day him just sort of, uh, just all this wisdom coming forth. And he was talking about the, the craft of teaching. He was talking about how one of the things that we don't focus on is that you know that that craft of teaching that people who have that ability to connect with the students will always get better outcomes. Um, and yeah, you know, he was someone who was at the end of his career, and and looking back, I, I think of him as someone who was uh, very popular with the students and parents. They all wanted him to you know teach their their, their kids. Um, but yeah, that craft of teaching it's it's very important, isn't it?
1: It is. And what you point out is that that sense of unconscious competence and there's a layer above that where people have to learn why it is that they're so good and why it is that you are getting brilliant results and all I see from my perspective is you doing the same things Mm -hmm. because my frame of reference is through what you do not who you are and it's Mm -hmm. these people who as you said connect listen it's like coaching those of the people who are in the listening audience now who have had coaching and an outstanding coach know that these are people who suspend their own needs in the moment to allow for the reflection, the clarity, and the insight to occur in the brain of the other person. That requires stepping back from your normal everyday needs of having a participatory 50-50 conversation, even more dominant in a classroom where the teacher is delivering uh, all of the time, Um, then... uh, and that's maybe a bit of an older view of some of the pedagogy, and it has moved on in terms of inquiry-based learning and all of those fabulous approaches, which get more at this, but that's still that sense of being there for someone and being unconditional. These are not visible to most people, and so therefore they're confused as to why Dave's so much better than me. I can't see what makes him great. <laughs> it's frustrating for some people. Um, and these these sorts of teachers tend not to have... Um, discipline problems uh, as many as uh, other teachers Uh, and they're much more relaxed and at ease with themselves they don't seem to have as much stress Um, not to oversimplify things because teaching is a massively complex uh, career to embark upon and there is never at the time when you know it all Um, it's like many careers I'm sure but it's just such a complex set of circumstances in which you've got a complex series of roles that you've got uh, and skills, uh, and it takes a long time to craft and develop those. But nonetheless, maybe we should be focusing more on these connection engagement, um, dare I say, it, listening skills, which is one of the core skills here. Uh, then uh, I think maybe if we don't do that, we'll be um, still making that mistake of being focused in, uh, on what I've got to teach rather than to whom and, and how and what how that might uh, be of best value for them.
0: So advice to young teachers, for any young people out there listening who are starting their careers as teachers, like what would be the most important uh, thing you'd want to, I guess, uh, get them to think about?
1: Look, there are so many answers that you can say I'm I'm stopping to think. Um, And there is so much to bring on in the first year or two. It's almost, over. in fact, it is overwhelming from um, the challenges in a classroom, um, motivating and managing behaviours, through to the struggle of getting through and planning and delivering, um, finding your own style, all of these things. I think the number one thing I'd say, first of all, is give yourself time and give yourself permission to um, navigate your way through this path Interestingly, in terms of rapid growth, the neuroscience would say we need about 80 to 85%. This is quoting a guy called Andrew Huberman, about 85% success and 15% failure is the ideal ratio where um, even modelling machine-based learning on this human learning approach, that 15% will shape the other 85% in the future. And so therefore be comfortable with um, seeking help with saying to those around you, if you're in a great school, you'll be supported. Um, but being open to saying, I'm really struggling with this. Ask questions, observe and watch, and just spend the first year, two years, three years finding your, your operational feet. But then as you're working your way through, feel okay with things not working. Have a disastrous lesson from time to time. Um us older teachers still have disastrous lessons from time to time and that's that discomfort that disappointment the confusion the lack of confidence are absolutely necessary for learning Um, that's again calling out andrew huberman he's got a brilliant um podcast called the huberman lab and i've learned so much from him and his approach around the whole idea of metacognition But go below the line in terms of positive and negative emotions. Be okay with not being 100% happy with how things are, but take forward action. Lean into the strategies, the steps, the tactics you can take to address mistakes. So when things go awry, acknowledge, plan, redo. It's that sort of iterative learning loop. So I think that number one message in amongst all of that detail is just be okay to travel that journey. Uh, and sometimes it might feel like 50 or 60% of the things are going wrong, mm-hmm. but um, find your, your your mentor friends that can help you, whether it be remote um, and asynchronous uh, in something on like Twitter or um, people within your school and, and who can support you. It's relationships that support us through those negative valence areas where the grind happens. And when you emerge through that is self-satisfaction of having survived and built upon that or craft you as an outstanding teacher. Is that too much? <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, I think that's excellent. So I think, uh, just to zero in on that, uh, 85%, 15% sort of, uh, failure rate success versus failure. Like, is that something that you think has, um, perhaps been a little bit forgotten?
1: It is in a number of ways. Um, we are phobic anywhere from, uncomfortable to phobic with things that are negative um, we run away from conflict you know we, we avoid it and in fact that avoiding these things is way more damaging teachers often try and make the learning as safe and as comfortable for for all the right reasons and for all the right motivations but actually removing those moments where um, mistakes can't be made or that they're reduced or that they're punished even in older systems of education. Mm-hmm. Um, these sorts, this aversion to making a mistake is is throughout our current modern culture. And I think that's because education has tuned people into making mistakes, are must you must avoid making a mistake. And that translates into our own practice. Um, you know, both Craig um, Edgespark, co-founder of mine, a fabulous friend, both he and I had moments last week in our work independently that were not so much mistakes but but were uncomfortable moments. In fact, I made a mistake in something that I posted last week and only saw the mistake I made and it wasn't a spelling mistake and I was uncomfortable with it. But that taught me so much more. So it's being that sense of being OK with it is really important. And it is absolutely necessary. The dip in the, the learning, going from knowing to not knowing, to calling out one of Veggie Spark's creators, Marcella Sterikov, who has a book called The Joy of Not Knowing. He often talks to kids about how do you go from knowing, sorry, how do you go from not knowing to knowing and illuminating that path so it's obvious to them is a part of that metacognitive approach. And we need to be in that same space where uh, we need to be aware, sometimes having critical friends that can bring that awareness to us, aware, open and vulnerable. There's a quote that I'll finish this little sort of piece on that. As a YouTuber called Veritasium. Um, His first name is Derek, his real name. But if you look up Veritasium on YouTube, one of his famous videos is the science of learning. Uh, and it's a really fascinating ten-minute video, which one of my favourite. But he finishes this with this really elegant line: "If you always use the GPS, you'll never learn the way." And as a metaphor, it's absolutely true. It's only when you try not to use technology-assisted navigation, your own brain, mm-hmm. and when you get lost, and then you find your way again, that you remember that path much more powerfully. And that's a fabulous metaphor or analogy for what learning is. There are times where I've had the GPS going so many times to go to the same place that Mm -hmm. for some reason I can't access, the satellites aren't working or the phone's got a bit of a bug and all of a sudden I I, I can't think of how to get there because I've always relied. And sometimes teachers become the GPS for their students. So we've got to create those situations where the path is difficult, where it is where you turn the wrong way. Um, and it's that that creates the, the deeper moments of um, lasting learning uh, that uh, really help people through some big moments later on in their life.
0: Now, speaking that, I remember the uh, the first time that I listened to you speak, I was actually, uh, I was driving in my car in, in Korea. I, I remember just before I got in the car, I got a notification on my phone about a webinar that I'd signed up to listen to. And so I Plugged that in and had that playing in the car as I was driving out to a, a very nice big mall where I lived uh, in South Korea, and uh, I, I remember when I arrived at the uh, at the car park, and I actually sat and continued listening because um, you, know, when you were talking about transfer, you're talking about that that idea of that creating that ongoing piece of learning, and this is a huge driving force for uh, for EduSpark.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is, and we continue and i continue to learn tremendously Uh, one of the things that is a complete surprise for me is that with the the 300 plus potential course creators and thought leaders trainers authors that i've had the pleasure and, and the privilege to speak to over the last 15 16 months that has constantly the constant conversation in this space has taught me so much uh and I've been able to finesse this down to a couple of key points, and I've alluded to them already. Um, whoever talks the most learns the most. It's that simple. Um, so how do we create the conditions where the learners in a, in a learning opportunity program course or whatever, how can they get at more talking opportunity? Because in the talking, what's going on is meaning-making, meaning-making of the content, or meaning-making of my application of the content so they, that sort of calls out another idea that, in fact, there are three sources of learning. One is the content itself. The second is the action I take and the things I do with it, whether it's I, I make an artifact or I create something or I go and do something. Or then, And then the third is that I I come and talk to someone about it. Now, a good little example is I, yeah, I've got a um, beautiful Chinese wife and I'm learning Chinese. She's learning English. It's how we met. And my English learning is much slower than her English learning, interestingly. But if I see on TikTok an interesting phrase that I think, oh, I'll try that on Susie when she comes <laughs> home. Um, I've watched it on TikTok. I've consumed it. By the t- If I do nothing else, by the time she comes home later in the day, I have completely forgotten what that was. It hasn't stuck. So consumption and content alone does not equal learning. I think learning has to take those further two steps, go and do something with it. So maybe I repeat it several times and even then, it's only in the heat of the moment of making a mistake and the stakes are higher that, um, that I think I'll really learn a lot. But then it's the laughing and the correction and the conversation that follows that ties that through. So conversation is key. Whoever talks the most learns the most. And then the second piece that drives towards this transfer is the formation of relationships that I mentioned before that take people through that negative part of the journey, the grind, the confusion. And that's where if you think about it, I've done this myself. I've started a lot of online courses and I haven't finished many of them. And that's Mm. that single consumption asynchronous model. There's no relationship established in that asynchronous Mm. model Yet, if I'm doing this with, say, with you, there's a peer-based relationship. And over time, if I'm connecting with either synchronously or asynchronously with the leader of learning, then there's a vertical relationship. That will sustain me longer through that, that sort of grind phase of the learning to get me to the point where my mastery becomes evident and I start taking the steps up above um, that sort of negative above the line, if that makes sense. So for me... The motivation behind Eduspark early on was to do something different, and I don't even know at that early stage when Craig and I first sort of had the idea over coffee, and then we started to implement it. Um, I don't think we knew the depth of that desire to get at different professional learning and transfer. So for me, without relationships and without the learner talking, there is no transfer, and there are lots of other things that support it. Um, but that's really at the end of the day, the technology we're building. It's taken us a while. Very early on, we were almost completely asynchronous, uh, even up until recent times. Now we have live video. Now we have asynchronous communities. So the opportunity for conversation is now technically present. Uh, it's up to us to try and build a, a culture and a community of practice that that uses that.
0: And just um, for the benefit of listeners who might, might not be aware of EduSpark, um, EduSpark.world, uh, professional uh, learning platform, Um building something that's more than just that is, though, isn't it, Andrew?
1: It is. Um, It's an ecosystem that's growing. So we're we're adding new features to it. Uh, One feature that's coming soon is the teacher portfolio that allows you to collect evidence, keep it in a repository if you like, and share it, share it with peers, share it with with the facilitator of learning, share it with the line management in terms of uh, evidence for appraisal. So that's an important piece that's coming. But we're driving to all the time finding better ways with our creator community to inform them about um, adult learning practice in this world of largely asynchronous or online learning, Um, but then also to support face-to-face as well. So it's turned into sort of these two camps, and it's almost a little bit, if you like – Airbnb, where a marketplace type setup has has turned up, where we've got access to 300 people, um, about half of whom are building or have built courses, a bunch of schools on the other side. And so one game we're playing is to improve the capacity for schools to deliver professional learning in a strategic and targeted way at scale in their organisation. So that means being able to target the right course to the right person And that's not yet fully finished but that's the journey we're on there individual um, landing pages for institutions that give them a more personalized approach Um, that connection of the teacher portfolio and into the appraisal process certifications are well under their way as an example of helping out schools and teachers cpd uk are in the middle of um, quite a number of the certification of their courses so that ecosystem on the consumption side is growing well beyond what we expected. But then on the creator side, we've got teachers. One of the big problems in, in starting a career outside as a consultant, as a some sort of practice owner, as a thought leader, a trainer, a, an author, coach, all of these things require significant risk. You step away from your paid role. Your paid role has both a floor of an income and a ceiling. Mm. Of an income and then you step out into this space and you're experiencing this yourself both the floor and the ceiling disappear (laughs) so you know upwards it's relatively limitless compared to the caps on your salary before but downwards it's relatively limitless too Uh, and and there's a, a whole raft of people who in schools who have such value to bring to the world where it's evident to me now that we can produce a pathway to enable them to start producing and learning how to produce the value in a a form that's consumable as learning opportunity for for, um, education and schools around the world. There's a pathway to go through from where you are in school, build an audience that loves your work and wants more of what you do, to stepping out and then running uh, a practice of some sort. And we're building components of VeggieSpark to support that side of the game too. And that, to me, is completely um, surprising um, so that creators can have a significant profile and, if you like, sell their courses um, into schools as required. It's one of those things in education that a lot of people are uncomfortable with, this idea Mm. that it's actually... Um, not morally correct to make money out of education as a thought leader. And that's not entirely true. If you look at that, why not? Um, you've got to survive in this world. And if you survive by bringing tremendous value to other people at scale um, and ultimately the kids in classrooms, then um, my belief, and it's been informed by a bunch of people from Australia called Thought Leaders and the Thought Leaders Business School in Australia, that's entirely deserving that you go and get rewarded financially for the work and the value you bring um, mm-hmm. the thing is to bring value first and then chase it's not about chasing the dollars first, it's about bringing that value, so another example of a conversation has gone full circle but yeah, that's that's what we're finding in EdgeSpark it's becoming uh, an ecosystem rather than a course repository
0: I think it also offers something which international schools need which is a sort of greater connection because one of the things i noticed um you know moving from new south wales public schools which are a very big centralized um you know huge employer of of teachers and as a result there's a lot of um very smart people who get seconded to work together and to work across Mm -hmm. regions and to you know to deliver a lot of um professional learning in international schools, it sort of becomes a little bit like little islands. So in a way, you're creating that service as well, which, of course, is a great benefit to schools.
1: It's an observation that actually is far more universal than we realise. The, the world of education is very disaggregated. So, yes, uh, we're creating a mechanism where individuals and schools can connect as a silo and to break that down and connect to other schools or other teachers horizontally in similar roles in other schools. The same is for the thought leadership space. Uh, There are so many people running their own battles all the time as someone who's trying to bring value to the world, more or less successful. Some people are brilliantly successful. Uh, A lot aren't because it's a real grind. And when you are acting independently, you're forced to move into a marketing type game as a creator where you're waving the flag and saying you know me too here i've got some some stuff of value and that's not what educators really enjoy online by and large so this world of disaggregation um, is something else that we're trying to address within the context and the game of professional learning um, the one of the big things now that communities have just dropped in in edge of spark there are five i'm in the middle of constructing with the idea that these are not linked commercially necessarily to needing to have a subscription to mm-hmm. Energy Spark, but start to address some global needs, I think. Middle leadership is one. There's, there's not really a great place for middle leaders to learn their craft and hang out together. Mm-hmm. Women in leadership, diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, early career uh, and pre-service teachers, you called that one out before. Um, and, and there are a couple of others that might sort of merge into that space where we can create uh, a place for people to hang out and discuss things asynchronously that have close and intimate access to learning opportunities in the rest of the platform. Uh, so for me, this this building of the horizontal links as much as the vertical mm-hmm. links between, between schools. But then we talk about one other level of disaggregation that will be in every school that's been in every school that I've visited or known. And that's between the educators and the non-educators in the school. Mm. There's a gulf between, you know, as head of IT at the Australian School, uh, my staff didn't get much. My IT support staff didn't get anywhere near the same level of access to professional learning funding. And in fact, funded a good deal of their own certification themselves. Mm. Um, so treated as almost Um, not the same value as the other parts of the school where um, professional learning was expected to be a part of the professional game. So desegregation left, right and centre we are isolated too too much in schools and between schools, for sure.
0: So I guess let's just wind it back a little bit. Um, When EduSpark began and then how the COVID pandemic impacted the the development of, of EduSpark, Uh, how did that play out so when when did you and craig uh, start to kick around the idea
1: so the history is actually mid to post pandemic actually not the start but i'd been you know a lot of my practice i was in a practice at the start you know i made this wonderful move in my career from being a head of learning development for cognita into running my own practice uh the absolutely brilliant foresight of doing that in September 2019 uh, and by January, you know, <laughs> it was COVID and most of the programs that, that, you know, I was continuing a lot of my work with Cognita as a consultant back in and, of course, a lot of that stopped and a lot of consultants like myself in the world had that big hiatus where, in fact, no one was booking anything. Mm. Um, so, um, yeah, but I learnt a tremendous amount during that particular time into 2021, I started to get back on the bike in terms of delivery. Um, and one of the things that Craig and I were beginning to collaborate around, and, and we go back a number of years, he was a victim of mine in um, uh, a middle leadership program I ran in 2016. And uh, we we connected really well there. And, and we always knew I'd catch up with a coffee at Stanford American where he was. And quite often, we'd sort of we, we always had generative conversations and we'd sort of speculate that somehow we'll end up doing something together in the future. We didn't know what, but sort of had that sense that mm-hmm. this would be of value. Now, fast forward into the latter part of twenty nineteen uh, 2021, Craig had formed a collaborative group of consultants and was beginning to use that expertise uh, amongst some different business opportunities. And I had begun to deliver some work through a platform called Worlds in in my work in response to what COVID was doing to the world of professional learning. And we started to together collaborate around delivering um, ed tech-based professional learning to IT support. As I said before, these are disenfranchised people. So how do we raise their value on their game, bring them into the idea of understanding what the game of education is and how we can help them feel more connected to the work that they've got. So we ran a couple of pilot programs, and it was in the middle of reviewing that that Craig said to me, why don't we build our own? Um, and you know, I sort of cringed to begin with because one of the characteristics of my um, career is that it's uh, learning management systems or these sorts of platforms have followed me around. I've implemented three. I came to Singapore on the basis of being an expert in one of those, and um, you know, I've, I've deployed two at scale for Cognita, um, more or less, more, more less successful uh, because it's a, a commerce-based or business-based platform, not mm-hmm. an educational mm-hmm. one. So we knew there was a gap there. There was something that wasn't being delivered to schools. The big commercial ones, the business-based LMSs, are all about compliance. Let's see who's done this and tick this off, and how long did they spend doing it? Nothing really about transfer or change. And then there are a bunch of good. Platforms like Teachable, Thinkific, Learn Worlds that have got good learning tools, but a lot of their processes around marketing as an individual your course to the world. And so, again, it didn't really tie in with the ethos and the approach and didn't allow us to bring into scale the opportunity that was there by um, acting as a marketplace for thought leaders, creators, authors, trainers, often who are really chasing that longer relationship with people um, as their learners. Uh, So that's really how it all started. So February 2021, um, and by April 22nd, I can still remember the day, we we said to each other, confirm, let's press the go button. Um, We are partnered with a group in the Maldives and uh, work started uh, uh, on the 1st of May for building this out. And um, end of August, we released our very first early version with, as I just said, one of my big learnings is it takes a long time for stuff to do to, to be developed, much longer than my ADHD brain. I'm sure it's ADHD, but much longer than my impatience would allow for. Uh, and uh, so uh, Communities was planned to be out on release, and here we are a year later, and we've just released that one after a couple mm-hmm. of goes. Of it. So, um, so, yeah, it's an interesting, it's a short history, but, um, you know, we, the concept continually gets tested in conversation and uh, uh, we went to thought leaders and, uh, to see if they would be happy to build a course for us well before we had anything to show them. And I felt like such a scam, uh, you know, we, this idea of it's going to look like this and it'll look a little bit like that one. We had nothing to show, all smoke and mirrors. But yeah. universally, people said this, we, this is what we need. This is what education mm. needs.
0: And it's a focus on the content, really, isn't it? That's, that's the greatest strength of EduSpark. And um, you've been, speaking of content, you've been just starting some uh, YouTube videos on the Spark, uh World YouTube channel, um, yep. looking very good. Uh, we might include the link in this even though this is a brand new channel here and um, it's probably it's uh, not exactly going to send a huge number of people to you but you never know
1: it will um, eventually for sure <laughs> um, particularly so, after the people you will interview after me I'd have to say that uh, the <laughs>
0: I wanted to ask you you've uh, you, you actually do some good content with your video creation skills uh, and I think I've heard you mention before the uh, product that you use platform mm mm-hmm, is that
1: right yeah yeah, I'm using it right now. So this is not my house. Um, uh, I'm in a fairly small setup in in uh, HDB land in northeastern uh, Singapore. Um, HDB is the, the public housing, um, mm. and public housing in Singapore is fabulous. It's mm. condo-esque, Indeed. if that makes sense. Um, and, uh, yeah, so uh, I'm always searching for mechanisms in ed tech, I think ed tech has a special role to play in learning. One of them is in terms of managing attention, because attention is the currency of learning. And if we can hold people's attention and reduce distraction, there's a really good theory that people should be aware of as educators called cognitive load theory. Uh, and there is, if we have attention bleeding away to things that are not helping um, the brain attend to the cognitive uh, work that has to be done, then that distracts. Uh, and sometimes putting a visual on a different part of the screen and having a talking head on the other side creates cognitive load, cognitive mm-hmm. dissonance where you know, your eyesight is. And in fact, your eye line and where your eyes go to really is a driver of what your attention uh, is doing. So I think edtech has a part to play in both um, triggering and maintaining attention for the length of engagement that a message might take to deliver. And this is one of the ones it has a particularly good green screen background. I'm continually looking to craft that more so that for instance, people aren't distracted by little artifacts that appear on the screen. You know, if something goes a bit blotchy or a bit of a green thing or your hair has got marching ants around it. Mm-hmm. sometimes people notice these things and don't hear the message. So for me, um, Phil Libben, who is the uh, founder of Evernote, uh, it's not so popular anymore, but that was really massive, uh, you know, ten to five to 10 years back uh, when he was brought out. He started the, mm-hmm, uh, the platform, mmhmm.app is the address. Uh, and I use it in a lot of my learning content because I can be innovative in the way that where I am on the screen in relation to a model I might be using can really hold the attention of the, the learner. Um slightly novel but not not sort of naff or or sort of too much if that makes sense um in the right place on the screen so that the attention is held for longer
0: certainly sounds like a great tool and if it's okay with you we might even just record a, a separate uh little demo if that's okay uh, just a little quick walk through that we'll include the link in this uh in this description as well so people can find that yeah. um ed tech tool now just before we finish up andrew i wanted to um, ask you because um, I know that your your daughter is becoming a teacher. Um, this is something which I've I've noticed. Now I'm I'm the first generation, I guess, teacher in in my family. Uh, in fact, I was the first generation to go to university. Uh, now uh, it's it's a bit of a thing, though, in Australia, isn't it? Uh, teachers' kids tend to become teachers. Do you agree with me on that?
1: Yeah, and I think it's even more universal than that. It's a pattern I've noticed that you know um, football players. Their kids, either gender now, um, go on to play football now that we've got um, better um, gender equity in the, the world of professional football sport here in Australia. Uh, <clears throat> I see a lot of um, I think somehow the passion and the interest and the environment to which kids are exposed to when they're growing up. And teachers of course, um, pretty well, nearly all teachers have had marking at home, uh, night time and on the weekend. Mm-hmm. And it, there's that sort of culture of, of education, even the desire to want to make a difference. I think teachers universally are driven by, uh, certainly the pay hasn't been great enough to, to pay to be a motivation. It's that sense of, I want to contribute to the growth of other people in some way. Um, and that, I think, is a value flows through to kids. Um, Steph, as a, as, as a young person, did a naturopathy um, course, again, that sort of that value of wanting to make a difference to the well-being and the health of others Um, her fiance is a middle leader a very successful um, uh, technology design technology materials technology teacher in melbourne Uh, and the fact that her uncle her aunt uh, and myself um, are all in education she's been surrounded by educators all of her life now interestingly my own parents were not educators so um but the strange thing is uh, just sort of uh, it might be um making the story a bit too long but one of the things I, I was lucky enough to say to my father um he we sadly lost him in 2020 uh 2020 actually um but not from COVID. Uh, he was 81 and had some long-term kidney issues but one of the things that i was lucky enough to say to him was the how much I appreciate the effort he went to, as a failure of school in his youth, to go back and reset his then matriculation, and then go to university and do a Bachelor of Science. Eleven years of part-time study, as well as part-time work, as well as part-time parenting or full-time parenting, really. Um, then put us in a position where he got a job with BHP as a metallurgist. And as a child growing up, I was exposed to all of his passion for science. So all that science stuff I I attribute to that same sort of values thread, that passion thread that comes through often from uh, parents to kids. And then um, both my brother and I have found ourselves independently in uh the world of education and his wife was training at that stage early in their marriage to be a teacher so you know we became if you like much like yourself that first generation of the educators but i think that we've set that up and and steph went back and did a not entirely mature but as a more mature age student not just first out of school she's done a second degree and proud father syndrome i have a terminal uh case of it She's uh, now successfully employed before the end of her course. Um, by the school, one of the schools that she did her her rounds with. Um, so they came back and said, we've got a, um, an issue with um, a vacancy and we'd love you to fill it for the remainder of the year, even before she's actually fully qualified. Um, this is her last year of the degree. So, yeah, it's um, it's been really... And when we get on calls together, we end up talking about all this sort of stuff together. You know, we often laugh about how this is not the normal father-child type um, but she you and know, I have a fabulous relationship, and have always spoken about all sorts of things in life. And it's well, just uh, It's fabulous to say that she's not only taken up the career, and it's a hard career, but um, yeah. but she's already finding some success. Um, I think from the values she has. So, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Well, you can be justifiably proud, and of course, you know, you've made a huge impact. You know, throughout your career as well and continuing with EduSpark on spark on a global stage and andrew it's been an absolute uh, pleasure to chat with you thanks for uh, joining us
1: thank you and yes I, I do talk a lot as you can tell and i love any opportunity to talk about things we all do but um i really appreciate the opportunity and the connection with yourself you know we've learned so much uh, from you already so uh, looking forward to the way that this continues
0: Once again, a big thank you to Andrew for being my first guest on Education Talks. If you'd like to appear on the program or reach out to me directly, please visit my website, daveict.com. See you next time on Education Talks.